0: There were eight of us this week who went out to the Shepherds Conference in California, and we were among the 5,000, almost 5,000 men who sang that song. You just cannot imagine how that song sounds. With 500, many of them preachers, just singing with all their might. Uh, Heaven will be much like that. And I praise God. But I praise God for the singing here, too. Uh, You guys, when you sing, you sing from the heart. And, uh, and that's the way we should. Well, enough of that. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time together. Thank you for your word. We need your word. It's, it is your words to us, our life. They are a light to our feet. You guide our path with it. You fill us with wisdom. You correct us. You challenge us. You encourage us. You get us back on our feet by your word. You give us meaning and purpose by your word, and most importantly, you have introduced us to Christ. We know nothing of him apart from your word, and so we thank you. We ask, Father, now that you would speak to our hearts and that we would change because of our time together listening to your truth. Fill us, Father, not with fear, but with courage to go out into the world and to represent you well, to proclaim the excellencies of Christ in all things to the glory of God and the joy of all peoples. We need your grace for that, Father, your your divine unmerited assistance that is in Christ Jesus. May this message, this abbreviated message this morning, be one that encourages us all the more to be faithful to evangelism and discipleship, so that we can exalt our King in this world. And we praise you for it in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. This week at the Shepherds Conference in California, uh, we heard Mark Deber make the following statement, which I thought would be a great way to begin this morning, and, and here it is. Uh, I'm going to read this twice, because the first time it's going to shock you, and the second time it, uh, it will maybe sink in. And if you could turn off your cell phones, that would be great. I just heard one talking to me, and I'm not sure what it was saying. And so here's Mark Dever. Think about this. If you are not trying to help others follow Jesus through evangelism and discipleship, then I don't know what you mean when you say you are a follower of Jesus. Let me read it again. If you are not trying to help others follow Jesus through evangelism and discipleship, then I don't know what you mean when you say that you are a follower of Jesus. This raises the question of why Christian men and women don't actively engage in Great Commission labor. The Great Commission it was not just for the Twelve. It's for all of us. And that's why I included in my prayer our, our, our purpose statement. You know, Jesus' purpose statement went like this. Go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Ghost. And we like to say around here, not in replacement of that text at all, but just to remind us with fresh words, That we exist, God created us for this purpose, we exist to proclaim the excellencies of Christ in all things to the glory of God and the joy of all peoples. And I suspect there are a number of reasons why many of us don't do that. We're not engaged in the Great Commission, and I'm not talking about preaching, that's that's my job, there's a few other men in this church who do some of that. But all of us are responsible for, for, for fulfilling our part of the Great Commission, and my question is why? Why don't we, why aren't we more involved in that process? And, and really, I, I know when the times when I choose not to, it's because of fear. Fear. And, and for you, I suspect it's the same. It's not time, it's Fear. I'm afraid that I'll say something wrong, or I'm afraid that I'll be rejected by the person I'm talking to. I'm afraid I will consume time that I have already committed to do other good things, or I fear the person I know I should speak to may never speak to me again, maybe a family member or a neighbor. I fear that I'll be passed over for that promotion that I've been working on if I tip my hand and and reveal that I'm a radical fundamentalist Christian, in some places, believers fear that they will be arrested and often aren't. Our brothers and sisters in China, it's a regular thing now. If you're a child of God and you're not fulfilling your part in the Great Commission through gospel ministry, personal discipleship, what fear is holding you back? What fear is holding you back? I mean, you... You belong to a church that is devoted to teaching you the word of God. So after all the years you've been here and in other churches, you have learned much about how to point people to Christ. And so what holds you back? What fear is it? If your life were a ship, what do you fear will capsize it and plunge you to the depths? Plunge you to the depths is excessively dramatic. But that's kind of the way we think, right? If this person rejects me, it's over. I I might as well just end it. And, And that's foolish thinking. That's irrational fear. And most of the time, our fear of sharing the gospel with someone or engaging in discipleship with someone is irrational fear. When we were headed out to California, I sat next to a man and uh, there was a space between us, which was wonderful, and, uh, and I thought, you know, I should share the gospel with this guy. I'm not really sure how I'm going to get started and everything. And he looked at me and he said, hey, let's talk about something. <laughs> and I said, well, okay then. Thank you, Lord. That was easy. <laughs> and then on the way home last night, I sat down and, and uh, this lady sat next to me and we got talking. And I thought I really ought to share the gospel with her, but I'm really tired, and uh, we're we're losing three hours. We we lost the time zone plus two hours. I mean, the uh, the time change and then two hours of time zone, and I just wanted to sleep, and she wanted to talk, and uh, and I didn't have to weasel my way in. I didn't have to do anything clever. It was just conversation about life and about difficulty, and then she started talking about her faith. And the door flew wide open. And then she had questions. You know how many questions she had? Three hours worth of questions. <laughs> I got no sleep. But you know what? She was so fired up about God and the gospel. It turned out she was a believer. But I never heard much of what I had, had said to her. And it was, it was discipleship. So on the way out there was evangelism. On the way back it was discipleship. What gives you fear? And what if, I, what if I told you that there is a way to stabilize your little boat so that you don't have to be afraid of whatever fears you think may smash up against your vessel? If you've been here for any significant length of time, then you know that I'm fond of using the metaphor of a ship's ballast. I just think it's profound and, it, and simple, and I like simple. And it helps me. A ballast, in case you don't know, is a heavy weight in the bottom of a ship. Sometimes it's made of water. Sometimes it's made of sand. Sometimes it's rock. It's, a, it's, a, it's, it's something that keeps the ship upright. It ensures that no matter the forces that slam against that vessel to capsize it, the ship will always return to its upright position. Beloved We need to come to terms with the fact that the Christian life is not like a ship afloat on a sea of no storms. It's more like a ship at sea that no storm can destroy. If you are a child of God, with the Holy Spirit in your heart and the word of God in your mind and on your lips, there is no storm that will destroy you. There is no storm that will capsize you. And the reason no storm can capsize the believer's life is because there is such a weighty ballast in in the deepest recesses of your soul that keeps you upright and faithful, no matter how fierce the wind and the waves and the tide may be. In our context for this morning, Paul offers Timothy and us five huge ballast stones, That we should put in the depths of our souls to enable us to take risks, whether real or imagined. And, And again, many times the risk is imagined and not real. But to enable us to take risks with strength and courage to fulfill our part of the Great Commission. Now, if you've been with us in 2 Timothy so far, you know this is what Paul is talking to Timothy about. Timothy was struggling with timidity. And this was no time for cowardice. Paul was about to be beheaded. Timothy was going to pick up the mantle. It was his job to pick up Paul's ministry and carry it forward. This was no time for fear. He needed to be bold. He needed to be strong. He needed to be fearless. And, and the wind and the waves that were going to batter his little bark were 10,000 times worse than what we experience. He needed to be ready. And Paul is not only exhorting him to be brave, to be uh, full of courage, but he's also giving him the appropriate weighty truth to keep him on the upright. So let's begin this morning. That was all introduction. Let's begin by reading the text. Would you stand with me? And we will read God's holy word together, 2 Timothy 2, 8 through 13. 2 Timothy 2. And in fact, why don't we start with just verse 1 to get the context. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of, of Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hard working farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. This saying is trustworthy. For if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. And if we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. You can be seated. There are five main points that I want to emphasize, though um, when I realized yesterday this is a Lord's Supper morning, I also realized that I was going to have to cut some of these rocks out for this week, uh, so we won't get to all of them. Maybe we'll hit two or three this morning. Enough, certainly, to feed your soul with the word of God. So the first thing, when you are tempted to be ruled by fear in an opportunity for evangelism or discipleship, here's what Paul wants you to do. Number one, remember, notice verse 8, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, when Paul says, "Remember Jesus Christ," I, I would I would say to you that this is a common statement of the Apostle Paul. You think of Colossians chapter two and going into chapter three, where Paul is addressing how do you battle temptation. Is it just a matter of saying, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that, and then you do it, right? You experience that? And Paul says in chapter 2 of Colossians that asceticism isn't going to get you there and legalism isn't going to get you there, and mysticism isn't going to get you there. These things have the appearance of self-made religion and severe treatment of the body, but they are of no value against fleshly indulgence. And you get down to chapter 2, and you're left thinking, okay, so how do I battle fleshly lust? How do I battle the indulgence of the flesh? And chapter 3, verse 1 says, therefore, set your minds on Christ. Set your mind on things above where Christ is. Where is he? Seated at the right hand of God. It's just another way of saying, remember Jesus Christ. Focus on, don't focus on your sin. Don't focus on the temptation. Focus on Jesus Christ. And here you are, you're at work. Here you are, you're talking to your neighbor, and you have opportunity to share the gospel, or to engage with a, a believer. Maybe you need to correct, or rebuke, or encourage, or uh, whatever it is, and you're fearful. What do you do? Well, Paul says, first of all, remember Jesus Christ. Set your mind on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. When Paul says that Jesus Christ, now I'm going I'm to flip these because I, I think of The uh, logical order here is is a little different than the um, grammatical order, because I think the second half of this is the basis of the first. So he talks about Jesus risen, but he talks about him being son of David, and I want to talk about son of David first. When he says Jesus Christ is a descendant of David, he is saying that Jesus, listen carefully, he's saying that Jesus is the promised Messiah, Now look at the verse again, it doesn't sound immediately like that, but watch this. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David as preached in my gospel. He is saying that Jesus is the promised Messiah. So remember Jesus Christ means remember that Jesus is Messiah. Every Jew understood that when Messiah comes, he will... He will come as the seed, literally spermatos, of David. That is, he would be the great, 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 great grandson of David, king of Israel. And that's why Matthew, by the way, begins his gospel narrative. Matthew, one of the larger gospel records, right? The first one in the New Testament. So how does... The New Testament begin. It begins with Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, which reads as follows. Matthew begins the whole New Testament by saying, The record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David. First words of the New Testament. Um, Think the first words are important? I mean, everything else hinges on whether or not this is true. Jesus is the promised Messiah. He is the promised son of David. That is to say, Jesus is God's promised king. Messiah means anointed. The anointed one is the king. He is the preeminent one. He is the one... Who possesses all authority in heaven and in earth? And, and by the way, you remember before the Great Commission, before he said, Go into all the world, the first thing he said was, All authority has been given to me in heaven and in earth. Well, that pretty much covers everything. If it's in the heaven, I have authority over that. Are we talking about angels? Yes. Are we talking about demons? Yes. We're we talking about the planetary bodies? Yes. He created it all. And on earth, everything that is on the earth, he rules over it all. He is the preeminent one. He is, in the book of Colossians, the prototokos. He is the firstborn, not meaning that he was the first thing created, but rather that he is the highest in rank of all things. He's the preeminent one. He's the king. He's the firstborn over all creation. And you remember, in Luke chapter 1, this is the Christmas story, And Mary is minding her own business, probably in her kitchen, and the angel Gabriel shows up. And do you remember what Gabriel said? Probably not, but let me read it to you. Luke chapter 1. And in the middle of Gabriel's announcement to her, he says this, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called... Listen carefully, son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Paul is saying, remember Jesus, the Messiah, the seed of David, the preeminent one who has authority over all things so that before he commanded you to do evangelism and discipleship, he said, don't be afraid because I own it all. I'm in charge of it all. I am sovereign over all. I am king of it all. And you know what? If the king is on your side, you have nothing to worry about. You have nothing to worry about. In fact, every conversation you have is a divine impo- appointment from your king. In John chapter 1, we're told that Jesus created everything that exists. In Matthew 28, Jesus himself declares that he has the authority over everything exists. Why? Because he created everything that exists. What does all of this mean? Well, if there is no authority in heaven or an earth that is higher than the authority of Jesus, then that means he's the king. He's the king. And so Paul is reminding Timothy, who is struggling with timidity, he's, he's backing up, he's, he's, he's fearful. Paul is saying, Timothy, my son, you have no reason to be afraid. I tell you what, those, that, those are some of the most comforting words to me that come into my mind when I'm about to try to share the gospel with someone or I'm in a, in a discipleship relationship and, and, and not all of them are with uh, people who are agreeable to what I have to say. It, it's so comforting to know, I have nothing to be afraid of here. God has put this person in my life. God has a mission he's fulfilling. God has put me on mission, and he wants me to speak. I have no idea what I'm going to say, and I don't have to worry about what I'm going to say. He's sovereign over nature. He's sovereign over all peoples and nations. He's sovereign over angels. He's sovereign over demons. He's sovereign over all circumstances. He's sovereign over your next opportunity to fulfill your part of the Great Commission. He's sovereign. Why? Because he is the son of David. He is the Messiah. He's the king. And so, Timothy, remember that the king of kings has commissioned you to go into all the world and make disciples. And he has the authority to use you. He has the authority to use you in every opportunity to accomplish the mission through which your faithful speaking, teaching, and serving God will do much And far more than you think, as we'll see as we go along. How can we be sure this is true? How can we be sure that the king whom we have not seen and yet whom we love, how do we know for sure that we can depend on him and that he is the king? Well, we go to the first part of the verse. Timothy, remember that the king of kings has commissioned you to do all of this. And how can you know it's true? Well, how can you know that with absolute confidence that Jesus Christ is the sovereign king? We know it, listen carefully, because the resurrection proves it. The resurrection proves it. And so Paul says, verse 8, remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead, the offspring of David. David. Resurrection of Jesus Christ is the cardinal fact that substantiates Jesus' claim to be Messiah. Listen, anyone can claim to be the Messiah. Anybody can claim to be the Messiah, and many have. Even back in Jesus' day, there were those who were claiming to be Messiah, but they couldn't prove it. But Jesus proved it, first by his miracles, healing the sick, raising the dead, first by his miracles, and then by the fact that death could not hold him. As the angel at the tomb said, Behold, he is risen, what are the next words? Just as he said. He was king over his own death. He was king over his own resurrection. And the angels were there to deliver that message at his bidding. And by the way, Paul Paul repeatedly says in the New Testament that Because Christ is risen, we will likewise be raised to everlasting life. Therefore, there's no need to be afraid. There's no need to be afraid even of death itself. Why? Because Jesus is risen and reigning. Jesus is risen and reigning. That, beloved, is the first ballast stone that Paul wants to put in your little boat this morning. You want to keep from being capsized? Start with this. Jesus Christ is risen and reigning. This is the beginning of the gospel. And Paul says, this is in accordance with my gospel. This is the gospel that that Paul always preached. And, And it is your gospel. It's your gospel. Paul didn't invent this gospel. It was given to him. You didn't invent the gospel. You don't have to invent a gospel. It is given to you. It is loaned to you. And you have the responsibility to do something with it. And, and, and I get it. Not all of you are called to disciple and evangelize in the same way. And if you're a mother here and you have children at home, and I know some of you have lots of children at home, your primary role with regard to evangelism and discipleship, knowing that you cannot save or sanctify, right? Right? You you don't have the power to do that. However, uh, just as I have no power to save anyone or sanctify anyone, you have no power to save or sanctify anyone, but it is your responsibility to point your little ones to Christ, to remind them of the gospel, to talk about the glory of Christ in everything that you see. That's why we say we exist to proclaim the, the excellencies of Christ in all things You'd be faithful to do that, and you'll be fulfilling your part. And maybe, by God's grace, you'll have the energy to disciple and evangelize other women who you know. And those of you at the workplace, and those of you who travel, and wherever you are, you never know when God is going to give you an opportunity. You just need to be faithful, and how do you you not be afraid? You start with, Christ is risen. And Christ reigns. He is my king. I am on mission, and I have work to do. I have no idea how it's going to turn out. That's the adventure. And they may not love me for telling them, but Christ loves me, and He died for me. So the first ballast stone is remember Christ Jesus, risen and reigning. Second, the second ballast stone. Is that the word of God cannot be bound? This is this is wonderful. All all of these are. The word of God cannot be bound. Look at verse nine. Uh, Well let's let's refresh on verse eight. Remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead and the offspring of David as preached in my gospel, verse nine, for which in other words, the gospel for which I am suffering bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. The word of God is not bound. Remember, the context of these verses is Paul's admonition to Timothy back in verse 3. Look at verse 3 of this same chapter. And he says, Share in suffering as a good soldier. This has been the theme throughout. Share in suffering with me. Don't think that suffering is something that you spend your whole life trying to escape. No, 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 this is part of life. This should be the expectation of life. Suffer hardship with me. Now, we know what kind of suffering he means. He keeps saying generically, suffering, 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 and now in this verse, we discover what he means. The gospel of the resurrected Messiah King, whose name is Jesus, has landed Paul in jail. He's in jail. He's been in jail before, but um, this will be the last time. He is suffering hardship, to say the least. The hardship of imprisonment. Paul's not asking Timothy to be willing to suffer what he himself has not already suffered and is suffering. Nor is Paul making light of the suffering that Timothy might have to experience himself or might be experiencing already. But Paul is really suffering. He's suffering at the level that you and I will probably never experience in this life. I mean, unless things radically change in our country, which is possible. The word suffer here refers to physical pain. Physical pain. This is not emotionally, oh, the Roman soldiers hurt my feelings the other day. Um, He is chained to a Roman soldier. Or he's chained to the wall. Or he's chained to something. He's experiencing physical pain and distress. The word for bonds here, or or, or the word used here is bonds. In the NAS, it's it's, uh, translated imprisonment. It is the word that means chains. We don't know if the chains were on his feet, if they were on his hands, if they were around his neck. We don't know, but we assume they hurt. You ever had metal wrapped around your wrist for a while? Um, Around your leg? or something you know if you've been hiking and you get a you get a pebble in your shoe and it just rubs and rubs and rubs and after a while it gets enormously painful paul is in chains he's suffering pain paul is experiencing physical discomfort physical pain in his imprisonment moreover he's being treated as if he were a criminal look at what he says for which i am suffering bound with chains as a criminal criminal here means evildoer, evildoer. They're treating me as if what I have done in this world is evil. You know society is going the wrong direction when you begin to notice that the world, the leaders of our world, look at white and say it's black and look at black and say it's white. They look at good and call it evil and they look at evil and call it good. Paul is suffering as an evildoer for, pro- for proclaiming the most excellent message the world has ever heard, the most hope-giving message the world has ever heard. Evildoer refers to one who has been examined, charged, and condemned as guilty in the eyes of the law. And this is a, a unique word in, uh, in the Greek New Testament. The only other place it's used, this is interesting, The only other place it's used in the New Testament is in Luke chapter 23, which is part of the the narrative of the passion of Christ, the, the crucifixion of Jesus, where we are introduced not only to Jesus on the cross, but to two thieves. The same word is being used. They're treating me like they treated the two thieves who were nailed with Jesus. For preaching the gospel of the resurrected Messiah... A resurrected Messiah named Jesus. Paul is cast into the ranks of men whom the state deems so wicked that they deserve to die. Paul is saying, Timothy, you must be willing to suffer that. You must be willing to suffer that. Jesus himself said, anyone who wishes to follow me must be willing to take up his cross. Uh, that that doesn't mean that guy at work is not your cross right? Your wife is not your cross. Your wayward child is not your cross. And the cross is bearing the shame and reproach of Christ. When people find out you're a Christian and you're talking about, you're talking like a radical because you're naming Jesus and you act like you love him and that you're obeying his word, it's going to make people think of you in, in ways that, that are going to be uncomfortable. Taking up your cross is all about bearing the reproach of Christ. Paul's saying, Timothy, you must be willing to suffer for the sake of the great commission. If you should be willing to suffer even to the degree that I am suffering, then you will know, as Paul knew, the joy of fellowshipping in his sufferings, as he says in Philippians. And don't think for a moment that such suffering will keep the gospel from going forth. Because while it's true that imprisonment has restrained me, the word of God is not restrained. It's amazing what happens when you speak truth. It is truth, and it is meaning, and it is life. Words, once they get out. Truth, once it is out, there's no way to to capture it. Paul Paul, in essence, is saying, you can kill me if you want to. I've already told the Roman soldiers the gospel. (laughs) And Caesar, they are filling your house with Jesus. And you can kill all of them. They're telling their children. Their children will tell their children. They will see the power and the glory of the gospel of Christ. Kill me. You will not stop the gospel. Jesus said, I will build my church and not even death, not even Hades, the grave, will keep me from building my church. How's the church built? It's built when you, moms and dads, brothers and sisters in Christ, when you speak the truth, when you get the message of the gospel right, regardless of how anyone responds. God does things with that that you would you, never be able to predict. You never imagine. I think I've told you before, I was teaching a class one time, and uh, one of the young brothers who was part of this church, his family's still here. And I was teaching, and I said, uh, I said let me try to clarify what I'm saying. Let's just say that, and I'll, I'll, I'll call him Bobby. Let's just say that I led Bobby to Christ, and I didn't. But let's just say, for example, and then I went on, and Bobby's hand went up, and I ignored him. Dude, I'm, I'm, I'm lecturing here. <laughs> and uh, Bobby raised his hands again. And I said, Yes, Bobby, would you like to contribute to the class? He said, You did. And I said, I did what? He said, You led me to Christ. I, said, I don't, help me. I don't remember that. He said, One day I was sitting in church and I heard you preach the gospel for the 10,000th time. And I don't know why it was then, but it was then. It's about speaking the truth. It's about speaking the truth. Each of my children who have come to know the Lord, when it happened, we didn't even know it. Didn't even know it. We started seeing changes in their lives. We spoke truth, we spoke the gospel, we called for repentance. And the Holy Spirit did the rest. It's like in the, in the Gospel of Mark where Jesus says the kingdom of God is like this. A man goes out and he sows the seed. He comes home. He goes to sleep. When he wakes up, the crop is sprouting and he knows, knows not how. The word of God is not bound, beloved. Do not think for a minute that your labor is in vain. You have no idea what God is doing with his spoken word as it comes out of your mouth. Because Jesus is sovereign king, the word of God is always on the move, accomplishing everything for which God sends it. You know, this reminds us, reminds us of Isaiah fifty five ten 10 and 11. Familiar passage, let me read it for you. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, God says, so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that for which I purpose it and shall succeed in the things for which I send it. The word of God cannot be bound. The reason you're a Christian today is is this. Though the world has tried to stamp out Christianity with every conceivable approach, yet somehow someone made their way to you and shared the gospel. And God took that truth and redeemed your heart, regenerated your heart. And you are a child of God because of it. Paul's ministry is a testament to this reality. You, you may remember back in our study of Philippians where Paul, in reference to his first imprisonment, Philippians 1, 12 through 14, he says this to the Philippians, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, this was his first imprisonment, right? Just been put in jail. What has happened to me has really served to what? Advance the gospel. <laughs> Don't think my ministry's over. I've just, I just have a new place of service. It has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. You know what will likely happen if you end up suffering for the sake of the ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Your faithful, courageous suffering may be the very thing that inspires someone else else to get off their hands, to get out of their pew, and to courageously suffer by proclaiming the excellencies of Christ as well. And even if you are restrained from speaking, in whatever context you are. If you are restrained in speaking, you need to know the word of God is not bound. The Lord is able to use your faithful ministry to encourage others to pick up the mantle and accomplish what you never could. You may be under your boss's authority and he doesn't want you to talk about it. And and maybe in those circumstances, it's, it's not appropriate for you to to, to say certain or do certain certain things in the workplace. Or maybe it's parental authority. Maybe you have unbelieving parents or the civil authority in your hometown. But listen, the word of God is under no one's authority. The word of God is the authority. The word of God cannot be defeated. I love Charles Spurgeon. He said, listen, you don't have to. The word of God is like a lion. You don't have to defend it. Just open the cage and let it out. It'll take care of itself. (laughs) Speak the word. And let God do with the word what he sent it to do. You don't have to fret. You don't have to worry. The word of God cannot be defeated. You may be bound. I may be bound. But the gospel of Jesus Christ and all the words of scripture cannot be bound. So put that ballast in the bottom of your little bark, when you're feeling a little timid and you're needing courage. These are the first two ballast rocks. Number one, Jesus is risen and reigning. He's king. And the second one is, the word of God cannot be bound. Beloved, in the light of these two great weighty truths, we can And we must speak God's word to the glory of Christ and to our own joy. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for reminding us of these great, rich truths. Pray, Father, that they would not be something we leave here and forget about, but something that we talk about, something that we meditate on, that we might be a church that is faithful in. In doing what the church at large has, has mostly lost, and that is a commitment to proclaiming the glory of God and the gospel. Oh, Father, I pray that you would continue doing that work more and more. Oh, how we love to hear the stories, the narratives of people in this church sharing the gospel with their friends and family and co-workers. Oh, Father, may we hear it more. And may you send your spirit to save some for your glory, for we pray it in Jesus' name.